So I'm about to go into the very structure of the Satipatthana Sutta, and that will correlate to the handout uh, you have. But I want to first see if you um, have any other questions about the Four Noble Truths that would help you sink into this next part of the discussion. I also want to say that um, in the Second Noble Truth, that Tanha is the source, it's the genesis of the way that we struggle and suffer, that Tanha sometimes, if you can feel it, it itself is very stressful. But if you're having craving for something positive, sometimes the taste of what you're craving balances out the strain of the craving. And you can actually feel like you're in a delightful process. If you feel it, that there's like this discontent for what is, but it's so overshadowed by what you're trying to go towards that the process of craving feels pleasant. It takes, you actually have to drop into the experience of craving to feel the strain within it. As we see on the four foundations of mindfulness that actually comes several times through the process of mindfulness. So there's tanha. But one of the things that tanha does to really make the suffering egregious, when the suffering really gets powerful, sometimes it's the strain of the craving that um, causes the suffering. But it's when tanha begins to solidify that inflexibility around your craving is where a tremendous amount of suffering also comes from. And that's where we cling and um, grasp. And the Pali word for that is upadana. So when the craving begins to lock in and there's no more flexibility, there's no more elasticity in the system, that um, tightening of the heart and the mind uh, is where a tremendous amount of suffering also comes from. And that tightening is born out of craving. It's born out of tanha. So that those two together um, created the tremendous amount of suffering that we get lost in. Which again is why the Satipatthana discourse has this structure, is it's meant to challenge this craving and it's meant to challenge where we cling and where we grasp, uh, trying to secure our happiness or trying to keep unpleasant things at bay. Um, There's a strain and a stress in that clinging and grasping uh, that, that arises out of the original thirst. So any questions about this sort of broad view? Yeah. Um, when I was talking, you were talking about there's a sort of a strain of pleasure in the craving itself. Uh, maybe, maybe I said it that way, but I meant the opposite, which is... a strain of suffering in the craving. Yeah. And so <clears throat> if you crave something pleasant there's actually something suffering in the craving, but because you're locking onto the pleasurable thing, the pleasure of what you're craving can mask the fact that there's suffering underneath it. So um, the craving I've had in my life for a particular romantic partner, the pleasure of the possibility is masking the fact that underneath that I might be feeling really deficient, 
but then I lock on like, oh my God, there's my solution. And the pleasure of it is there, but right below that is a sense, I'm actually not okay. And I don't think I like me. But if I was with that person, then I didn't want to have to be with me. I could be in that fantasy and that tastes good. Like, oh my God, they're actually dating somebody already. Crash. How could I crash out of something that was pleasurable? Because right below it was something not seen. And so in the craving, if you crave something pleasant, the strain and the setup for the suffering is masked sometimes. And what you really have to do is say, just do a little reality check. Um, Am I okay with the present? And therefore this is a beautiful aspiration. Or am I not okay with the the present? And I cannot tolerate the present. So therefore the fantasy is escapist. Because then if the fantasy works, it reinforces this running from tendency. And if the fantasy doesn't work, then you're actually down in the hole you're trying to get out of and you, um, your strategy didn't work. Which is the point you could wake up, but most people then try to feed the next escapist fantasy. So having aspirations are beautiful. One of the things you want to be able to taste in them is... How big a gap does the aspiration create between where you are now and where you'd rather be? If you can actually, to some good degree, meet the present experience and then have a creative aspiration, then that's not um, got a lot of tanha in it. But if you can't meet the the present moment and therefore the fantasy is to get you out of it, and that's, um, that's tanha within the fantasy. And that fantasy will have the taste of dissatisfaction and craving in it. So it's one of the places we improve our, um, our mindfulness scan uh, through what's happening to see if there's a... Um, if there's a dissatisfaction. And there, there again... <laughs> uh, it's okay to want to change things. So dissatisfaction also is a slippery English word because wanting to create something new, wanting to come out of the habits where I suffer, um, saying what's happening now is not okay. There's one layer where that actually is a sober, healthy thought. But if you can't change what's happening immediately, you're going to have to tolerate it And so you have to be able to meet what's happening and then go about changing it. And it's that ability to both meet what's happening and be inspired to bring in change means that you're not cultivating uh, the craving and the suffering around that. So if the room caught on fire, we wouldn't just mindfully smell the smoke and make sure that there wasn't an ounce of craving anywhere wanting us to get out of the fire-filling room it would be a wise thing to take care of ourselves and uh, leave the room. You could also do it mindfully and quickly or in a complete panic. Um, A lot of the training here, the robust training, is the ability to meet your experience before you go about changing it so that you end up strengthening both of these qualities. So into the structure of the Satipatthana Sutta, it's a bit like uh, having 
a very powerful plow made of iron with a very great point to it and a very powerful oxen walking it through and this plow goes right through the very territory where we're most likely uh, lost, where we have our greatest compulsions. And it's meant to kind of unearth, to open up these areas that are hard to look at and where there's a lot of compulsion and a place where a lot of our clingings have taken root in us as well, not just the cravings, but the inflexibility and um, trying to secure ourselves by becoming rigid in certain areas. So this is the structure that we'll read when we read through the sutta, just so you again look at the overview of it. The discourse begins with a declaration that this is the direct path. So like that plow going right through the uh, the earth and turning it over for the the ripening in the of the garden to come. It's a direct path. It deals with things directly. Then there's a definition of setting up mindfulness, the de- right, defining right mindfulness. You meet the body from within the experience of the body. You meet the, um, the mind from within the experience of the mind. You don't um, contemplate it as if it were a foreign object some other place and some other time. You go within the stream of experience to, um, to find the, the awakening that you want. Thank you. Thank you. And then it goes into these four foundations. There's the body, which the Pali word is kaya. There's the second foundation. The Pali word is vedana, and it often gets translated as feeling or feeling tone. And I find that um, people get confused around that. I was confused for years around that. So I prefer the Pali word. And for that, I'm going to... uh, guide you to know that poly word versus the English feeling or feeling tone. Because that often can connote um, a more emotional quality. And Vedna is whether the experience has a taste of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Somewhere on that spectrum, all experiences have this taste of being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. That's the second foundation of mindfulness. The third foundation, chitta, is the realm of the heart and the mind. And the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the Pali word is dhammas. And dhammas are um, <clears throat> studying the, the, the processes of the mind, the systems of the mind, the ones that get us caught and the ones that get us, allow us to be free. So just like a, um, a scientist, a biologist might study cells, they would be saying the Dhamma of cells, how cells function, what are all the little moving parts and how they work together as a whole to create cell biology. An astrophysicist might study the laws of stars and planets and, and supernova. The Dhammas we're interested in that we want to study are those that generate confusion and suffering and those that end the process of confusion and suffering. So all the little reflections we do on the fourth foundation is studying the processes and the systems of suffering and of liberation. There are these four foundations of mindfulness. Um, 
The second and the third foundation just have one basic reflection. The first and the fourth have many categories, many ways that we actually uh, study the stream of experience of being embodied in the first foundation and the lawful nature of how the mind works when it gets caught and how it gets free. All told, these four foundations generate 13 practices, six for the first foundation, one for the second, one for the third, and then five for the fourth foundation. So each day we're going to go slowly through this. This is just, we're getting, this is overview day. So if 13 practices, oh my God, I was just trying to remember four foundations. Now there are these 13 practices and your teacup filleth quickly. <laughs> uh, worry not, this is why we are here for a whole week to go through this and give some. And when they're done experientially, you can see how they're crafted again to look at craving and attachment um, and how to wake up in these areas where suffering is created. That's a bulk, the bulk part of the structure of the Satipatthana Sutta, going through these four foundations and each foundation having certain meditative reflections that you develop. And then finally, at the end of the sutta, there's this very exciting prediction of success that uh, if you practice this for seven years, you're bound to be either completely awakened or so close that uh, um, you'll be very happy for your uh, your time put in. But not only six years, if you do it for uh, seven years, if you do it for six years or five or four, if you do it for one year, you're bound to be successful, let alone half a year, a third of a year, one month, done two weeks, 10 days, and down finally, done intensely for one week, you might find that this practice, this direct path has completely liberated you from all forms of suffering. So it's a very exciting last paragraph for the possibilities of doing this. <clears throat> what I've found is that we all make headway and uh, headway over time is really worth it. And then some people have um, found that this has actually been the path of how they've completely liberated themselves from these uh, underlying forces that cause our suffering. So this is the structure that we're going to... Um, explore. Um, any questions about this sort of overview of the Satipatthana Sutta structure? So we'll come into the very beginning of it. Um, and we'll start with the first foundation. The word Pali word is kaya, and it gets translated as body. And there are six practices. Practices four, five, and six we'll emphasize tomorrow. But for today, we're working on the first three practices of the first foundation of mindfulness working with the breath, working with postures, and working with activities. One insight into the structure of the Satipatthana Sutta comes right between 
the third and the fourth practices, the first three practices of the first foundation of mindfulness, breath, postures, and activities, is to establish mindfulness, to deepen it, to establish it so that it's continuous throughout your day. There are formal practices that we do in relationship to breath. There's opening it up to these four formal postures, sitting, standing, walking, and lying down. Then there's all the activities in between when you're not doing formal practice, but you're eating, you're going to the bathroom, you're making your bed. Other times in the day that you learn how to be mindful during those activities. These first three practices are just to establish presence, an embodied presence through your life. So that's a lot of the structure that we do here on a long retreat, is a lot of sitting and walking and then learning how to be mindful while eating, and then uh, slowly over time, building the capacity to be mindful throughout the day. The next three practices, the 32 parts of the body, the four elements, and the, the corpse reflections, they take mindfulness in a new direction. And the direction there is to feel the body, be present within the body, but then begin to deconstruct the experience of having a body. The first three, found, the first three practices help us become embodied throughout the day. But when we get into the next ones, the practices will open up tomorrow, the 32 parts of the body, the four elements, the corpses, there to improve our intimacy with what it's like to actually have a body, but to see it as an ongoing process. Not this body as a familiar noun, my body, but a body as um, a stream of ongoing activity that has many moving parts. We'll see that the, uh, the intent of that is to begin to um, understand the body as a fluid process and not something that you can solidify an attachment in relationship to. Uh, you can solidify an attachment to water that's turned to ice because it be, has be, taken a form. But when that ice melts and becomes liquid again, it loses all of its distinction. So it's hard to grab a gallon of water with your hand and cling to it because it's all fluid. These other parts, these other practices um, are to give you the felt sense of a body as a process, as an ongoing process. And we all know that. I could say that and we would kind of nod intellectually, yet still instinctively relate to our body as if it's something fixed that I get to cling on to as I, me, or mine. But when we establish mindfulness of the body and then begin to feel the body as these many moving parts, and that the parts ultimately go through an aging process and a falling apart process that's quite natural, that's meant to soften this instinctual clinging to the body, that I can grab it and then find security in it as if it were static. But that comes tomorrow. And it's probably something you've already gone through on previous retreats and other parts of your life, but we'll get to look at that more closely tomorrow. For today, we're practicing mindfulness of the breath of the formal postures of meditation like walking or standing or lying down. 
and then spreading our mindfulness, inviting our mindfulness to be continuous throughout the day. No matter what the activity, can we be present during that activity and begin to see what that activity is actually made of, whether we're in silent practice, whether we're interacting with each other during meals, uh, during uh, times of work or rest. We're first trying to establish mindfulness and embodied mindfulness. The second huge part of the Satipatthana Sutta, not only are these four foundations with their many um, many reflections within each, within each topic, but if you look at the second half of the page, there's the word refrain. As we look at the Satipatthana Sutta, what you'll see is that Everywhere we develop mindfulness, in the body, the postures, the activities, the 32 parts of the body, all the elements that make up the body, whether we're looking at the mind, or looking at this pleasant, unpleasant, neutral quality, whether we get to know all these dharma processes and get to know them as moving parts of a greater system, they all are followed by what um, Anilayo Bhikkhu calls the refrain and so there are 13 practices, but there are 13 times that we go into the refrain. So the refrain, the refrain plays a very important part of the Satipatthana Sutta. And in some ways, it's the most um, reliable part of the sutta. You go into all these areas and open up mindfulness to different aspects of your experience. But the refrain is where you are deepening your wisdom. And some people might say that Mindfulness is intimacy with a stream of present time experiences. But we use this word vipassana that's different from mindfulness. Vipassana is when we actually look into the stream, this intimate stream of life, and begin to see what's actually happening. So it's a meditation in the stream of experience that draws out liberating wisdom and why the word, the Pali word Vipassana gets translated as insight, we're trying to generate a, a new way of seeing that's more accurate in the stream of our intimate um, experiences of life. The refrain is that part. The refrain is there to um, draw out these classic insights to the nature of experience. So if you look at the structure of the refrain, we might see that at first you get to know the breath, you get very um, steady with your ability to do mindfulness of breathing. And then you're asked to go into the refrain. Can you, have, can you be mindful of the internal experience of the breath? Can you be mindful of the external experience of the breath? The way you might do that is you might, there are several ways of thinking about that. One is, the interconnected nature of breathing, that breathing is not just an inside me experience, but breathing is my connection to the world. I breathe out and I breathe out into the world and I breathe in from the world. My breath is not like my blood that is a, a closed loop inside. Even my blood is fed by food and nutrition and things I drink, but the breath is my relationship to the internal world and the external world. You also can begin to tune into that um, we are all breathing. And so my experience of breath is your experience of breath. 
and I can draw out this sense of commonality. So it's not just me that suffers and I'm trying to untangle myself. Your relationship to your breath is grounding. My relationship to my breath is grounding. We are breathing. So first you can focus internally on the experience of breathing. Then you can focus externally on the nature of breathing. And when you know both of those, you try to bring them together and you can feel the uh, dissolving of what is internal and what is external. That's when you get to do internal and external. This is part of the refrain. When you can do internal, when you can do external, you can then let it arise together. And then you get into this, um, you're drawn into mindfulness of a shared experience, which can develop into mindfulness of interdependence, mindfulness of the we. We are waking up. We get caught in confusion. We are all breathing. Part of the confusion that we have is that we know ourselves somewhat well, and from that sometimes we feel isolated in connection with others. And so by doing this refrain practice with the breath, you know the breath internally, you know the breath externally, and then you get to feel for a moment internally and externally mindfulness, and it opens up, um, it invites an awakening, an insight into the felt sec- uh, sense of interconnection. Should probably back up and say for a second that the school of Buddhism that we study here that, is, that um, has looked most closely at this discourse, the mindfulness of breathing, is called Theravada, Theravadan Buddhism. And <clears throat> there are so many different schools within Theravadan Buddhism. They all use the same Pali canon. Um, they all would turn to this sutta but they would interpret it differently. And so I, I know many different schools and to see many ways that this has all been interpreted. Um, I'm giving you um, what is a little bit more the, the, um, the felt sense of folks who've gone through Spirit Rock and worked with many different teachers, what has been commonly sensed as useful uh, as in a reflection. But even my reflection is just one and that there are many different schools that would interpret this differently. So there's one school um, that believes that if you go into very, very deep states of concentration, that your mind becomes so powerful that you, just with the power of your mind, you can actually sense the breath in other people. And not other people near you, other people in other buildings and other people in other towns. You can actually sense the breathing through this power of heart and mind of all the breathing on the planet. And so when they do internal, external, combined with this powerful form of concentration, there's a moment where you actually are feeling the, the planet breathing, the trees, the beings, all doing this activity. So for them, that's how they would interpret this you get into this incredible sense of union through breathing. It's more than just a sense of interconnection with your local environment. Actually, there's a very profound dropping away of individuality when you feel uh, the planet does breathing, that all life has this exchange from the inside of the life of the cells 
to the outside environment and that there's a breaking down of what is individuality and what is collective. You start to feel the collectivity of life and there's a certain amount of delusion and suffering that comes out when you perceive yourself as an isolated, autonomous being. We isolate and work on our autonomy to protect ourselves and then feel the pain of being cut off. So it's actually a kind of a powerful thing to do this internal, external, and then bring them up together, internal and external. The second reflection, arising and passing, arising and passing, is that you drop into any, any experience like breathing and you see that it's a new experience. The breath is constantly changing. And so you tune into the fact that the breath is arising. And you tune into the fact that the breath is passing. And then you see if you can actually bring those together and feel the constant fluctuating nature of the breath. It's coming and going, arising and passing, nonstop arising, passing motion that undermines this solidity identity of the breath is something solid that you can grab onto. You're also welcome to know something with bare attention. Bare attention, you try to quiet your mind and all of its interpretations and just see what the bare experience is without all your heavy interpretations. That's also in this refrain, a way of developing and deepening insight is to know something directly and not filtered through a tremendous amount of previous experience. And the last part of the, the refrain is abiding in mindfulness and developing mindfulness that you're in the stream of the experience, abiding in the stream of the experience, feeling somewhat independent from the burdens of your personality, the burdens of your life, past and future, feeling that, that freedom in the stream and not clinging to the stream, not clinging within the stream. So these are four different developments within the Satipatthana Sutta, constantly developing the sense of internal and external arising and passing, what um, a more true and clear and direct experience of the flow of your mental and physical sensations are. And then working on this, uh, this streaming quality to be in the flow of experience without clinging. As mindfulness has gone, is going popular and it's on the cover of Time magazine and many people are doing it and receiving the benefit of it, it's possible that people unconsciously are doing these reflections but it's also possible that people are not going that deep into internal and external, getting to know them, uh, really training the attention so it can pick up on the arising and passing, more fully developing bare attention as opposed to the heavily filtered attention, and then learning to drop into this abiding where you're really at home in the stream, the river of experience not needing to create a self, not needing to crave or cling for your well-being. But it's a, a deep part of the structure of this discourse. 
Does that generate any questions for you? Anything you want some clarity on? Let's see the sign of the hands again. Yeah. Four foundations, creating ten, creating thirteen practices with thirteen refrains, and each refrain having ten elements to it. <laughs> Is there any just clarity on that, or there's, yeah, yeah, and <clears throat> it's it's sort of why mindfulness doesn't level off at some point, and then you say, what else you got? Uh, that actually it keeps deepening, and the the sense of streaming, the sense of fluidity, keeps getting stronger. So rather than you knew it on Tuesday but lost it on Wednesday, you had it on that one retreat, not the second retreat. You never feel it at work. All of a sudden, streaming starts to happen, and um, you feel the interconnective uh, dance, the cosmic dance that's happening, and your part in it. And that keeps deepening and broadening, um, and the the capacity to suffer keeps breaking down and kind of coming out of the small contracted being trying to find security and happiness through contraction and craving. Um, as that washes out of the system, so does the suffering that comes with it, and then there's just streaming. And sometimes they call people who have had very deep awakenings, but are not, not yet totally free, stream entrance, stream entrance, people who have entered the stream, and the streaming experience is so strong that there's no longer a capacity to go back into clinging for the shore, but the stream just keeps getting deeper and broader. Yes. <laughs> Great majority of people are somewhere between having not done anything right. and being fully completed. <laughs> but we all have probably had intuitions and moments. Um, and so one analogy of this is that um, there were, I used to live in San Francisco and the fog would be thick and so I could see, I knew the sun should be there but I couldn't see it. And I could see the haze of the sun but it wouldn't break through. And then it would break through and then the fog would come back. And so we have these insights and those insights start changing but they don't make a, necessarily make a permanent change. Yet there are certain insights that happen where you actually change the nature of the, of the fog and it can't come in as thick, and so you get more glimpses, and you're not as disoriented. And maybe the awakened heart and mind is one where the, the fog doesn't roll in, and that there's there's the sense of ongoing clarity. But there's a, there's a way that we're developing over time so that we're operating more from a waking, streaming state, and not a contracted or fixated state. Um, 
Yes. So, which also seems like it can take a lifetime. Yeah. I've often heard breath breathing you, so I was like sort of paying attention to that a little with the in-breath and the out-breath as quiet speaking to it. It seemed like when I was speaking the words, I got caught up more in controlling the breath than the breath breathing me. So I, I just wanted you to speak to it. So when you were using labels like in and out or, yeah. So that that's good feedback. That there are times when those techniques enhance intimacy and streaming. And there are times when they actually confound it and make it difficult. And so you have to do it for a little bit rather than like start and stopping. It's just like overall right now, I'm going to try counting my breaths or saying in and out and find actually... Generally, that's improving this stability of intention to be with the breath. Then other times I'm like, I'm actually with it. And if I have to think about something, it pulls me into my thinking mind. And then it's, it's not helpful So to know when to use techniques like that and when to drop them when they're not being helpful. And then different temperaments of people, some people will find that it's very helpful. Some people, sometimes some people it was never helpful. So we each get to kind of experiment and then develop our own practice. I have a technical question. Sure, a technical question. Um, only in the word abides, there's only a connection. And that sense of abiding, abiding, dwelling, whatever the English equivalent is, of finding that um, that resting place and a place where you're resting. But the rest is you're resting in the stream. So it's not a rest that, that solidifies. It's a resting in streaming. And so you're, it's almost like a home. You don't close a door and then weld it shut close the windows, weld it shut, and try to solidify the home, you're abiding in the home, but you also come and go from the home. The home is a form of security, but it functions well. It's not a prison because you can come and go through it. And so how do you abide in your own home? How do you abide in this human body? How do you abide in our culture? How do you abide um, in the cacophony of lunch where there's all that stimulation happening, can you find abiding in all these different circumstances? Consciously, intimately abiding in all these expressions of life. So you could use the word reside. How do you reside in these Yeah, you could use the word reside. Tell me understand that. Yeah. I'm not picking the word. Sure, and whatever, whatever English word has you drop in, um, tolerate, yeah, that, that, like, see, tolerating. So, if my body is a stream of experiences that I can't get full control of, nor exit my way out of, how do I abide in a human body? Well, I can't control it. I can't only make it pleasant. I have to kind of deal with the fact that it goes through some aches and pains. How do I develop a deeply, a more deeply abiding nature of having a human body? I could try numbing practices so I don't have to feel it 
and find that I'm not actually abiding in it very well. The more um, freeing, the less suffering mode is actually to abide very intimately in the body and even tolerate some of its aches and pains so that you can improve the streaming experience of being at home in the body without that struggling relationship to it. So that deepening of intimacy ends up being liberating, but it means you have to come in more intimate contact with what's unpleasant so that you have a much more unobstructed intimacy with the body. Yeah, and I, I, I bet that you and I um, <clears throat> would find almost complete agreement. Um, so what you're saying, I, I resonate with it. And <clears throat> having worked with these, um, I see the way that that, um, that they're not in conflict. So um, I've had chronic fatigue for 15 years, and it's been an incredible source of body pain. But I can say I've had chronic fatigue for 15 years. But I was awake within those 15 years and there were many times that I was not feeling pain. So I had a lot of a lot of recurring pain and very predictable pain. Sometimes the pain would really seem to lock in. But because I had a heightened self-intimacy, I could see no pain I don't wake up at a 10, stay at a 10 all day long and go to sleep at a 10. All pain, there's fluctuation in it. And you actually, you can start to find relief if you can start to meet the pain because it's it's a matter of temporarily dealing with it going up to a 10 and then it subsides and finding some relief as it goes down to a 3 and then it goes up to a seven and down to a two and then it goes way up to a 10 again and only down to a nine before it goes up to a 10 again. And then you're in the nine, 10, nine, 10 wave and you think it's never gonna shift. And then all of a sudden it does roll back down and then it goes up again. And so pain doesn't have this type of permanence like it's made of steel 
and has no fluctuation in it. It's rising in the present and it has an unknown quality to how much it comes and it goes. So when I've been able to be intimate with it, I've seen that there's fluctuations in it. When I can't see the fluctuations, when my mindfulness gets fatigued and I can't be in direct contact with it, I'll pull back out of it and then it does tend to solidify because I can't quite look at it. So I'm not sure if this, my mind wants to go for an analogy, but I'm not sure it really fits. So if I was <clears throat> living with an ornery dog and the dog barked and was in a bad mood, but then was in a good mood and played with me one day and then bit me the next, it's like it's changing all the time. If I can't deal with a dog, I put it in a kennel and in the kennel, it's one thing. It's a dangerous dog. No real relationship to it anymore. It solidifies into one thing. That dog has to be in that kennel. Letting it out, it bit me, so that wasn't pleasant. But then it, that was just a bad mood of the dog. Then actually turned over and was almost describing my dad's cattle dog. <laughs> uh, it's as likely to try to kind of herd me and nip me as it does want its belly scratched. So the real dog is got a lot of variation in it. And I try to meet the real dog, like, okay, sketchy moment with this dog, back off. Okay, tummy rubbing moment, get close. So the real dog has nothing but change to it. The dog that I protect myself to by putting the dog in another room takes on a noun, like a, I average it out and call it one thing. Some of these tendencies, and especially trauma tendencies, especially trauma tendencies that are laid down very, very young, to uproot them takes a whole process to really make a difference down in realms of um, deep, deep, deep trauma. The trauma goes from dormant to active, back to dormant, to active, back to dormant. The trauma never stays on all the time. Even when you go to sleep, the trauma is nearby, but there are times when it's dormant. That actually begins, you can then dance with something. I can't dance with a telephone pole because it won't move. But if, if there's sway in it, then there's a, a relationship there, and then there's a mystery there. And in that mystery, you actually can get to know it, and it actually will start to tell you a story that you can't learn if you don't have that dynamic relationship with. And then that begins to untangle it layer by layer. It's just that the layers of early trauma are so deep that they feel one part, very reliable, very consistent, coming up in every relationship. So there's some sense of reliability. And it also something that's a very dynamic play. And when I hold the truth of those two, very powerful, worthy of respect, but not something made of steel that is not impactful. I can't have any sway over. Both of those things are helpful to give it the size of appreciation and the respect it needs, but also not resigning myself to its infinite nature. Um, because I only do that when I tend to feel overwhelmed. And then temporarily, it seems infinite. And then I rest, regroup, and realize, oh, it only seemed infinite temporarily. But in truth, there was another day. There was a, a renegotiation that was possible.
simplicity that, um, that as we gain these techniques and therapies that the brain does change and that is uh, in a sense our way out so that we're not permanent that way. Um, Buddha didn't have a word like that. Yeah, he did. He had a word that we're going to discover called sankara. And a sankara is something created that turns back to influence the creator. And so all of our habits and patterns are sankaras. And if we treat sankaras as if they're permanent, they'll appear permanent to us. But when we realize that we're reinforcing them all the time, then sankharas are actually um, flexible and changeable. And one of his deeper insights is that the entire known changing universe is a play of sankharas, and that it's not actually a play of these ironclad, immutable forces, that there's everything is in dynamic. And it's actually through the constant reinforcing of it that things appear unchanging, yet when we begin to actually have an intimate relationship with them and have a more fluid relationship, a lot of our entrenched habits begin to change. So I would think he would look at what we're learning about neural pathways and how they get reinforced and how they get changed, is that the neural pathways were probably the fundamental underpinnings of mental sankharas because they, they can change. There's a way for that permanent kennel dog that feels very comforting. And there's also, there's been this yearning for a long time of standing in the stream. So I'm just sitting here right now listening to both. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of, <clears throat> a lot of people are. A lot of very dedicated people go through a process of waking up. And then the waking up process finds certain habits and patterns that are very difficult to be intimate with. And then there's a whole beautiful development of using these mindfulness tools, not just hectically and courageously, linearly, but recognizing, oh, certain realms um, need a different type of holding for them to healthfully transmute, for them to healthfully go through transition. And so mindfulness has become actually a very important tool for people doing trauma work. Let's take another brain break, bio break, body break, and uh, in silence, we'll stretch, come back, and we'll just, we'll come back and we'll do a different type of exercise to change up the mode that we're in. So 10 minutes to stretch. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.